After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome back to another Baseball America podcast. This is your host, Jeff Ponce. It's our first post-lockout podcast of the Top 10 Prospect Podcast Series. I, of course, am in the host seat today because Kyle Glazer is the author of the Los Angeles Dodgers Top 10 and the Top 30 for the handbook. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be on with you and definitely happy the lockout's over so we can get back to talking about actual baseball as opposed to uh, accounting and negotiations. A hundred percent. And uh, we don't have to remind people that there's a lot of baseball going on, like I know you did uh, in the Rangers podcast. So there's just so much going on right now. And we're finally getting some movement on the MLB side and on the MILB side with some players getting moved as well. One of the players, of course, always is the Los Angeles Dodgers. And after a big season for the Dodgers in 2020, winning a World Series, obviously, in the shortened season. They then followed it up with a 106-win campaign. They have a top-10 farm system. They're kind of the class of Major League Baseball at this point. Kyle, what are your thoughts on that and sort of this overall um, view of the Dodgers system? Yeah, I mean, take a step back and look at what they did in 2021. Obviously, a lot of disappointment with the way things ended, losing in the NLCS to the Braves. But... This team won 106 games last year with Corey Seager getting hurt again and playing less than 100 games. Cody Bellinger just completely falling apart and hitting 165. Mookie Betts missing 40 games due to injury and having the second worst season of his career. Clayton Kershaw missing six weeks and then again not being able to pitch in the postseason. And Trevor Bauer not being available after June because he was placed on administrative leave pending investigation into a sexual assault. I mean, all these things that went wrong normally would have tanked another team season. Again, Seager, Bellinger, Betts, Bauer, Kershaw, these are stars. All that happened, they still won 106 games, which just is another testament to the insane talent this organization has, the insane depth this organization has. And again, their run of NL West division titles ended. The Giants beat them in the division title race, won the season series against them, won 107 games. But just the fact the Dodgers were still in it after all that, again, and won 106 games with all that happening, it's kind of mind-blowing. And now you turn the page and all of a sudden, Again, they sustained some losses, but Clayton Kershaw is back. Chris Taylor is back. They have Trey Turner now after acquiring him at the deadline. They lost Max Scherzer in free agency. He was huge in helping them withstand all those injuries last year, particularly on the pitching side or injuries and suspensions, I should say. Losing Dustin May, Tony Gonsolin's command going backward. I mean, Max Scherzer really, really painted over a lot of things for them. So losing him is significant, but this is a team where – there's still a lot of talent here. Again, Corey Seager is gone. Max Scherzer is gone. But Kershaw's back. Taylor's back. You still have Walker Bueller, Julio Urias, Mookie Betts. I mean, this is a team that, for all intents and purposes, is probably still the most talented team in baseball. And oh, by the way, they still have a top 10 farm system. The Dodgers were baseball's most dominant team last decade from 2013 onward. And honestly, I don't think that's going to end anytime soon. This is still the team that's the class of Major League Baseball. They've got a lot of talent in the majors. They've got a lot of talent in the minors. And they're not unbeatable. They're not invincible. We saw it. The Giants beat them for the division title last year. But I don't see this ending anytime soon. This team should be good throughout the 2020s as they were throughout most of the 2010s. 
And I think that's the biggest takeaway for me when you take a step back and you look at what the Dodgers have done over the last 10 years and then the position that they're in. And I think it's even a testament to the depth of the farm system and how all the mechanisms within their front office, and we'll say all the tentacles of, you know, amateur scouting and professional scouting and international scouting and how all that adds up that they have the talent available with the major league talent that they have with the team they have to still go and acquire a player like Max Scherzer and other pieces that they needed. Um, they got some good news this week as well with Max Muncie uh, apparently being a full go for spring training. Um, so that's, that's a big part of it, but they do have some holes to fill here. They've had some holes to fill over the last couple of years. What is it about the, the Dodgers beyond just the players that they acquire in the talent what is it that the Dodgers are doing behind the scenes that's allowing so many of these players and prospects year after year to make incremental improvements? Yeah, I wrote the big feature for us about it in 2020. It was supposed to be our cover feature for the April 2020 edition of Baseball America, but COVID hit in March and scuttled those plans as well as the plans of the wider world in general. Uh, but the feature's still online, and even though it's uh, almost two years old now, it's really, it all still applies. I mean, first and foremost, the Dodgers pay to hire the best coaches in development. They have a a tremendous staff that really checks their egos and really focuses on helping players get better. And not just players who were the first and second round picks. The Dodgers have so many guys who've come up and been contributors that were drafted in rounds 10 to 20, rounds 20 to 30, rounds 30 to 40 even. You look at the Zach McKinstries of the world. The Dodgers coaches do a great job and their player development group does a great job of really ensuring everyone is given the tools they need. And also if you perform, you're going to play. It's not just about, oh, we need to make sure the first rounder clicks. Look, if the 33rd rounder is better than the first rounder, as Zach McKinstry was clearly better than Jaron Kendall, guess what? Zach McKinstry got pushed up the system faster. So they have, frankly, again, just the best coach and also kind of the right mindset of, hey, we need guys who are going to perform and we're going to reward those guys that do. And we've seen them do that over and over again. Nutrition's a big part of it. Again, it's never made sense to me why when you're trying to raise professional athletes, you're giving them just crap food. I'll never forget being in a minor league clubhouse and there's a big signpost on how to eat healthy at the gas station. It's like these guys shouldn't be eating at gas stations. You should be supplying them with fresh, healthy meals. And the Dodgers do that. It's come up again and again. A lot of times the Dodgers prospects are physically just in better shape than their counterparts because they're eating better, which is what you need to be doing when you're talking about developing 18, 19, 20 year old young boys trying to turn them into professional athletes. So, I mean, the best coaching, the best nutrition, and so much has been talked about what they do on the R&D side, research and development, a lot of the high-tech training they have going on. But I don't think enough gets talked about how much they do on the scouting side, the traditional scouting side. You know, people talk about the Dodgers and Rays so much as these great organizations and immediately point to all their analytical advantages. The Dodgers and Rays have two of the largest professional scouting staffs in baseball. These guys understand that it's a blend, that you need guys on the ground. You need eyes on the ground. You need to be seeing these players. It's not just about the data. It's about blending the data with the in-person looks and weighting them equally. The Dodgers do that as well as anyone. They employ a, a very, very large scouting staff on the professional side and the amateur side. They let these guys go and see who they need to see wherever they need to be seen at whatever level they need to be seen at, which is important. A lot of teams are telling guys not to scout the upper levels anymore and, and losing advantages as a result. So again, it's a large staff that's allowed to do their jobs, combine that with great coaching and great nutrition, just great support. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward formula that I'm shocked every team doesn't do, but the Dodgers do it. They were one of the first to do it. And we see the rewards, how many guys we see take jumps in their system year after year after year after year. People are like, well, where did this guy come from? Well, if you feed them right, give them good coaching and, and let them develop on their own timelines and reward them when they perform, that's a pretty good way to have success. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what I was getting at. And uh, to steal a, a corporate jargon sort of word, there's a lot of synergy between all the different departments and elements of development and talent identification. Maybe that's research and development in and of itself. So that being said, over the last couple of years, the Dodgers have had some misses, not the last couple of years, but the Dodgers have had some misses in the draft over the last six to seven years. What sort of happened, and I know that you had mentioned this previously, is that the international scouting has sort of 
picked up the slack, so to speak, on some of those missed first round picks. You know, if we're looking at some guys that maybe didn't hit in the first two rounds, you look at, you know, Jaron Kendall, um, JT Ginn, of course, didn't sign. Cody Hosey thus far has not really performed. Michael Grove, Jimmy Lewis, Morgan Cooper, just to name a few. Um, they've drafted well on a lot of those drafts in the later rounds, as you mentioned, with McKinstry and the Kendall draft. But the international scouting has produced some of the top players in this system right now. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, again, no one bats a thousand. The Dodgers are, for my money, the, the best in baseball when it comes to scouting at all levels, amateur, professional, and uh, international. Their 2016 draft is one of the best drafts in the last 10 to 15 years and has a chance to become one of the better drafts, you know, really the last 50 years as these guys progress and mature. But no one bats a thousand. Um, you mentioned they, they didn't really hit all their 2017 first rounder, Jaron Kendall. And, not signing JT again, Cody Hosey going the wrong way, but this is where, okay, you know, one area for whatever reason, just, you know, a, a little bit of a slump that happens. There's another area that's there to pick up the slack and, and the international scouting, which I mean, the Dodgers have a long, long history of going back to the eighties, just an incredible run there. And, and really that's kind of been one of their, their hallmarks as an organization for decades so many guys that you look at in this system right now, the top 10, top 15 were international signees and, and not just international signees, but guys, they didn't really spend a whole lot of money on it. Again, just great scouting, you know, Diego Cartaya, their number one overall prospect. He was a big, big time international signee, got a big bonus. No question about it. He was a, a big name guy that everyone knew was good, but Miguel Vargas, Andy Pajes, Eddie's Leonard, even Jose Ramos, Yorbi Vivas, Kianel Choi, all these guys signed for $300,000 or less. Ramos signed for 30 k out of Panama. I mean, a lot of these were not, quote-unquote, big guys. The Dodgers found them. They got them for relatively low bonuses, and now they're all standout to one of the best systems in baseball. And again, it just goes back to, again, the Dodgers have the boots on the ground. They combine everything really well, you know, R&D with traditional scouting, and they find guys at every level, internationally, domestically, you know, amateur, professional, it doesn't matter. And you just see that in their system that, hey, you know, for whatever reason, again, it happens to every team. They had a couple drafts that just weren't as productive as some of their others, but because they scouted and signed guys so well internationally, they still have a top 10 farm system. So let's jump into the top 10 of this top 10 farm system. Um, you talked about Diego Cartaya a little bit. He's number one in this system. How good can Cartaya be? Because there are numerous high draft picks in this top 10 guys who have more professional experience than Cartaya. He's a catcher. So there's some things maybe working against him, but is the bat that special? Like how special is this guy? So when you go out and see prospects, there are certain levels of, okay, this guy's good. There is, Oh wow, this guy's pretty good. And then there's Jesus, this guy's good. The top level is the holy expletive prospects. The guys you see and go, holy expletive. <laughs> George Springer was a holy expletive prospect when I saw him in Lancaster back in 2012. Ronald Acuna was a holy expletive prospect when I saw him at Gwinnett in 2017. When I saw Diego Cartai at Rancho Cucamonga last year, he was a holy expletive prospect. It is unbelievable how let's just start with behind the plate 19 years old and just seeing how quiet everything was how mature everything was how he handled the pitchers for a 19 year old teenager in full season ball for everything to be that quiet that easy that smooth that polished you don't see that 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 doesn't exist in low way it was remarkable watching him just play defense how quiet everything was and how, how, how he handled situations, how he just some of the little things in terms of how he was, you know, holding runners, even as a catcher a little bit, how he was setting some hitters up. I mean, it's consensus. Yes. It's plus defense with a plus arm, which is really hard to throw on 19 year olds in low a, and there's no question about it with him. And then there's the bat. So when you're talking about really young guys, in low A, you see a lot of big swings, a lot of high effort swings, a lot of chasing. Even the guys who put up big numbers last year, you know, I saw Luis Matos, again, really talented young hitter, but 
he would chase sliders down the way pretty consistently. You look at Robert Hassel, again, really good young hitter, but you'd see him kind of, you know, drop the back shoulder, try and launch and lift and just get into this nasty uphill swing where it's just lost swings and misses. And they'd adjust, they'd, you know, make adjustments, but you'd still see just a lot of youth in a lot of these guys and their swings. Diego Cartaya, every time out, was confident, controlled swings, did not chase, did not give in to pitchers. And when he made contact, it sounded like a cannon. It was Eloy Jimenez-esque cannon off the bat. It was remarkable to see someone this young at this level, not just the skills he had, but the maturity, the poise, just the way he handled himself in the game. Now, the huge caveats here are, He's a young catcher, which is a very, very scary demographic. And we see those guys stall a lot. So you have to take that into account. And the other thing, it was only 31 games. So the league didn't see him a second, third time through. And, you know, these guys have scouting reports, but it's one thing to read something on a scouting report. It's another to face a guy for the second, third time over the course of the season. So we saw guys like Noelvi Marte, Marco Luciano. You know, some of those guys slumped. And a lot of times it was the second or third time through the league where pitchers had a feel for them. They'd seen them. They knew what they could do and how to pitch to them. And Cartai, we just didn't get to see that because, again, it was only 31 games. He arrived late uh, due to injury and then went down in July with more injuries. So, um, you know, he's had, he's had some back issues. He missed time with a strained hamstring last year. The league didn't see him a second time. So, so there are all those caveats. But when he was on the field, he was a wholly expletive prospect. All right. I had to turn down the heat in my basement because uh, – <laughs> <laughs> But, I, yeah, I mean, you look at the numbers. Obviously, they stand out. 31 games. Um, you know, he was ranked as the best defensive catcher in the system as well. And it sounds like he probably at some point could rank as one of the best power hitters and best hitters in the system uh, as he matures and matriculates and hopefully stays healthy and plays a full year. You know, the other thing that we wanted to mention too is the Dodgers have a long, illustrious history of developing homegrown catchers. Yeah, I mean, this is what the Dodgers do. Go back to Roy Campanella, and then you can draw a straight line. You know, Steve Yeager, Mike Sosha, Mike Piazza, Paul LaDuca, Russell Martin. You could throw AJ Ellis in there. He's not as good as those guys, but another homegrown catcher who was there for a while. And, and now Will Smith. I mean, this is what the Dodgers do. They develop superstar homegrown catchers. In the cases of Campanella and Piazza, Hall of Fame homegrown catchers. Um yeah, I, again, you know, Diego Cartaya, you you want to take a step back and say, okay, this is a young catcher who has a couple of instances of back issues here. They're minor. It's not a huge red flag, but anytime you are delayed going out to a season because of a back flare-up and then you finish the year in the IL because the back kind of got tweaked again, you know, you want to be a little cautious. But from a talent perspective, I mean – Yes, an all-star ceiling is is there, and that's the number we put on him in the handbook. And, you know, I've seen some people ask, well, what are they going to do with him and Will Smith? Look, catchers take a long, long time. You think about Cabert Ruiz. He broke out at 18, a year younger, in high A, at higher levels than Cartaya was at. And now we're entering 2022, five years later, and he's just now about to have his first full season as a catcher in the big league. So, catchers even potential superstar ones take a long time to develop so i don't think dodgers fans need to worry about what we're going to do with Cartai and smith this is still three four years away probably but when it happens it has a chance to be big all right very exciting stuff let's move along because it's not just Cartai at the top of this system we have two other prospects that i think have somewhat of a viable case to at least be in the conversation for number one here number two being uh, Bobby Miller, who I saw in the Arizona Fall League this summer, who was a uh, first-rounder back in 2020 out of Louisville. And then Miguel Vargas, who was one of those signings that you mentioned before, signed out of Cuba back in 2017. I believe his father is a fairly well-known or prominent uh, Cuban national team player uh, from like the 80s or 90s as well. So talk to me a little bit about those two guys. Very good prospects, very exciting guys that could have impactful major league roles 
Yeah, exactly. Both these guys have have real serious upsides, and there are people in the Dodgers organization, high level decision makers with track records of of being right, who will say they would maybe take Bobby Miller number one over Diego Cartaya just because he's done it at higher levels. Cartaya is a young catcher who has, you know, again spent you know some time on the injured list with back issues, and that's that's a little scary. And you can find people in the organization who say they would take Miguel Vargas because he's the best pure hitter of all these guys. And he's also at double A as a 21 year old. So um, again, these guys are, are all really, really good prospects. They're all top 50 prospects to be a top 100. Bobby Miller has always been a big guy with a lot of stuff. He didn't have a ton of control. And at Louisville, his first two years, he was kind of going back and forth from the bullpen to the rotation. He didn't become a full-time starter until 2020. And he only made four starts before the pandemic shut down the season. So he's never really had that season of being a full-time starter and airing it out over a full season. Last year, the Dodgers were really, really cautious with all their pitching prospects. He only threw 56 in the third innings last year. But we're seeing the control get significantly better. He's really tightened up his delivery. The Dodgers have done a lot of work with him. It's a lot more compact. Again, he's a bigger guy, big body. Sometimes the control gets away from him. We saw that in the fall league a little bit. But when he was on the mound at high A and at double A for a little bit, it was power stuff over the plate consistently and just looked like that number two, number three starter potentially. And then Miguel Vargas, I think, is someone that's been underrated for a while. The kid can just flat out hit. He's always been able to hit. You're right. His dad was a really actually a kind of a, an international baseball legend. He was a starter who won two gold medals with Cuba on the Olympic team. He holds uh, the Cuban Serie Nacional record for longest hit streak. He was an MVP in Serie Nacional. His dad's one of the best hitters really to ever play in Cuba, Lazaro Vargas. And one of those guys who's kind of a what if guy, if he had gotten a chance to play in the majors, how good could he have been? And, and a lot of people think he could have been really, really good for a long time in the major leagues. He's that good of a hitter. And his son is very much cut from the same cloth. When you look at Miguel Vargas, one of the things with him was when he first came up, he just had this really natural ability to drive the ball hard the other way. It was kind of an inside-out swing, you know, level flat side over the plate and just peppered that right center gap, tons of doubles. And the question was, okay, can he turn on balls with authority in the air? And the Dodgers worked with him on that. He went out to double-A last year, and he surprised even them how much power he had in there. Once he started turning on balls in the air, all of a sudden you're seeing above-average power with room for more. Uh, Career-high 23 homers, I mean, after never hitting more than seven in a season, and he did it without sacrificing any of his ability to hit for average. The guy just hits. The very common comparison is Yuli Gurriel. You think about Cuban hitters with kind of an inside-out swing and just the knack for barreling absolutely everything. And that's the reigning American League batting champion at age 37, Yuli Gurriel, if he had been in the majors in his prime ages. I mean, again, this could have been an elite, elite premium hitter for a long time. That's what Miguel Vargas has a chance to be. This guy is that good of a hitter. And you just look at his age, his levels, what he's done everywhere – I mean, this, this is what it looks like, what future plus or even plus plus hitters look like, at least performance wise at 19, 20, 21, when you look at the levels of the performance. So I wanted to move on to the next couple of players who are um, a couple of college draft picks actually from the same draft class in 2019. Uh, number four, that is Michael Bush, second baseman. And then number five, Ryan Pepio. And I think with both of these guys, there is some question as to what's the long-term role um, Bush has some defensive questions. Pepio, there's been some command issues. I think, you know, some folks have wondered, is this a starter? Is this a reliever long-term? So with each of those guys, how do you sort of see their long-term role playing out? Yeah, so Bush was a first baseman in college at North Carolina, had played a little bit of left field at times. And ultimately, you know, the Dodgers decided that they thought they could turn him into a second baseman. And when he first got out there, it was pretty rough. It was, okay, best case scenario, this is a 40 defender with a 30 arm at second, which you don't really want. He has made a lot of strides. He kind of thinned out, got a little more limber, a little more agile. And now you're starting to see there's a chance for him to be a 45 grade defender at second base with a 40 arm. Again, it's not perfect, but it's playable. It, really, you're looking at kind of what Max Muncy was. You're 
let him play second base, kind of you know shift enabled second baseman for the first six innings, and then you move him to first base for the final few innings. The Dodgers did that a lot with Muncie. That that's kind of what we're looking at here, just in terms of what the defensive profile is going to look like. And there's a chance that maybe it's that for a little bit, and then they just say you know play first base and, and DH on your off days. Now that the DH is in the National League, so playable at second. You don't love it there. In a perfect world, you probably want someone a little better. But again, you can make it work in spurts, kind of like they did with Max Muncie. I think the biggest thing with him is what the bat is going to look like. And I say that because he's someone who's always had the ingredients where you look at how he can look over a baseball, spit on pitches, his plate discipline, his pitch recognition, the swing path at its best, where you say, oh, this guy should be a plus or better hitter. But you look at it, and the performance has never really been there. You know, even in college, his career average was 282. He never had that huge, huge college year. And you know, 2018 at North Carolina was really good. But you talk about what plus or plus plus hitters hit in college. It's not 317. It's 360, 370 or more. And then in pro ball, it's been a lot of the same where you see the ingredients. And in fairness, last year was his first full season. He went straight to double A. It was a tough assignment. And he got hit on the hand, which, you know, kind of affected him. He wasn't right for a while before he finally did miss some time. But there's still more strikeouts than you want to see. Sometimes the stride gets a little long. And, and you look up, his career average is 259 in the minors. And that's just not what plus hitters in the major leagues hit in the minors. So I think figuring out what type of hitter he's actually going to be is kind of the bigger key here. We did see him really, really step it up toward the end of the season. He actually had a phone call with Dave Roberts in August, I believe it was, where Roberts challenged him to be more to hit 300 the rest of the year. He got more aggressive after that. He was a little passive early and he torched double A the rest of the year. I believe he hit 346 after that phone call. I have it in my write-up if you want to check it out on BA.com. So, I mean, there's the potential for him to be a plus hitter. Everyone sees it, but he hasn't quite done it. And so I think that is actually more of the what's it going to be question mark than the defense. I feel like we know what the defense is. It's that shift-enabled second baseman who moves to first base in the latter innings. That's pretty much what it is. The bat to me is more of the, okay, what is this going to look like? Can he get to that plus hitter or does it become more of an average hitter? Yeah, and, you know, he's one of those guys where, as you said, the plate discipline, you know, and the ability to identify pitches is otherworldly, but it does get overly passive at times. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about, about Pepio, um, you know, who is another guy with – he's got a signature pitch. He's got some stuff that stands out. He has an 80 changeup, you know, in terms of the grade that we had in the handbook. Do you see him as a starter or a reliever long term? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I saw him at Dodger Stadium, that summer camp outing where he was making Cody Bellinger and Matt Beatty and Gavin Lux and, and Max Muncy look foolish getting swings and misses with his fastball changeup. And the slider was actually working for him that day too a little bit um, in that two-inning stint. So you see the flashes where you say, oh, man, this could be really, really, really good. But a big part of being a successful start of the major leagues, it's not just looking really good for two innings or one time through a lineup. You have to be able to be consistent day in and day out, inning after inning, turn the lineup over two, three times. And we just have never really seen him do that consistently at any level in terms of his ability to consistently throw strikes. His fastball command is getting better. It's still not where you want it to be for a guy where you feel really good about saying, oh yeah, this guy's going to be a bona fide starter in the major leagues. And look, he, he gets out of his delivery a lot. He'll spin out of it to a point sometimes. Uh, someone joked, it almost looks like he's shaking hands with the first baseman. I mean, he can really, really spin out of that thing and it causes him a lot of problems. You know, I... Personally, when I look at the consistency, and again, I, I, he's a great, great arm. There's a lot to like. You see the velo, you see the changeup, and the slider's a pretty good pitch too. It's not like it's like a 40-grade slider. It's just, again, is he consistently going to be able to throw not only strikes but quality strikes? And he's just never done it. And so for me, that's where I see him probably having his biggest impact as kind of a, a vicious end-of-game trio with Brewster, Gratterall, and Blake Trinan. If he does start, it's probably more that five-and-dive type of starting, you know, five innings out of him, 
and he's, you know, in theory, he'll throw enough strikes over, over that amount of time. He's not a guy who's going to give you seven or eight innings, anything like that. But, you know, five innings of power stuff with some walks mixed in there. We, we do see those guys, and some of them can carve out nice careers for themselves. Ultimately, I think the lack of consistency with his control it, it is probably going to put him into the bullpen. Again, we saw it even last year. He'd have a really good start where it looked like it was all clicking, and then the next start he didn't get out of the first or second inning. Just couldn't do it consistently. To me, I, I think I, I do lean reliever, but I don't see that necessarily as a bad outcome. I mean, you need power relievers to win in today's game, and I think if he ends up being a, a setup man or potentially closer, if he can really sharpen that control up even a little bit more, that's not a failed outcome at all. So I, I think that's probably where I lean, but I don't want to completely close the book on him becoming a starter. I think this year, seeing what the fastball command looks like is going to be really, really key and the delivery and determining what his ultimate role is. Cause he should be in the majors this year. The Dodgers are going to need him to come up and help at some point. And the fastball command, I think, is the biggest thing to watch, whether that jumps or not. That's what's going to determine what role it's going to be in. Yeah, and I think it's easy for us to forget sometimes, too. This guy climbed all the way up to AAA. This was really his first full minor league season. We forget that with all the 2019 draft guys that, you know, they didn't get a full minor league season in 2020. I know he wasn't the alternate site. I actually spoke with him a little bit last offseason. He talked to me about, you know, the work around the major leaguers and, you know, pitching to Mookie and some of these other guys. Um, but I think you're right. I think when you look at a guy that has a fastball like this, a changeup like this and two different breaking ball shapes, though I know neither of them are more than average at this point. That's a guy that you still want to see for as long as possible, if he can potentially start. And at worst, he's somebody you can throw into the bullpen right away. He's got the power on the fastball and he's got a secondary that can get offhanded batters. Now we've gone through the top five. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with the rest of the list. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly, beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. All right, so we're back uh, rolling through the rest of the Los Angeles Dodgers top 10. Um, really exciting names in the back end of this list, some guys that could rise into the top of the system. Two in particular I really wanted to hit on a little bit were two of the bigger breakouts in the minor leagues, but particularly in the Dodgers system last year. That's Landon Knack and then Eddie's Leonard. You couldn't have more different backgrounds in terms of the type of players and where they came from. One guy was a senior sign, other one national draftee, position player, pitcher. Talk to me a little bit about those guys and sort of what's next in 2022 that they have to prove that the 2021 break breakout was legit. 
Yeah, these were two of the, the biggest breakouts in the Dodgers system. Knack was really impressing the Dodgers right away. He went to the alternate site after they signed him, and right away he was getting a lot of buzz as someone who was pretty dang good. And, and Clayton Beater was kind of the bigger name, but Dodgers officials were more excited about Landon Knack among their 2020 draftees. And I think the biggest thing with him, we saw the fastball continue to tick up. He really ticked up a lot his senior year at East Tennessee State, and that's what led him to kind of fly up into the second round. The changeup is really, really good. We saw the breaking balls flash better, and the control is is excellent as well. Got up to double A, just a really, really efficient strike thrower. And at the end of the day, if you can just you know dot your stuff anywhere in the zone and mix your pitches – you're going to have success. There's a lot of sense that he has a chance to be a pretty good, you know, number four ish starter. I think the biggest thing with him is just seeing if he can really kind of get his breaking balls to be more consistent. You see his slider flash you above average, but it really needs more power and break. And then his curveball, you'll get some people who will put average on it. You'll find a lot of people who say it's more of a 40, 45 pitch. So I think the biggest thing is just getting those breaking balls to be more consistently, even just average, because we see guys who are fastball changeup right-handers with great control a lot of times sail through the minors, and then we get to the majors, they have problems. Chris Paddock being kind of the archetype of that. But Chris Paddock's curveball on a good day is a 40. If that can just get that that slider consistently in that average-ish range with more power and break, and that curveball again, consistently more average-ish, even 45-ish, he should be fine. The biggest thing with him is just really shoring up those breaking balls, getting them more consistent, even as one of them. It doesn't have to be both. But that's the biggest thing. We saw uh, right-handed hitters in particular do pretty well against him last year just because, again, the breakers were not that great. So you want to see that kind of be the biggest thing with him to take a step forward and show that, okay, this isn't just another fastball changeup guy with great control cruising through the minors. This will be something that works in the majors. And I think he will. We see how he's continued to get better every year, I think he'll be fine. And then Leonard, the biggest thing with him, I saw a lot of it at Rancho last year. He always has had just this fantastic bat speed, but in part because of that, he crushed fastballs, but anything that was below 90 miles an hour, he was just so far out in front of. He didn't know how to stay back on pitches. He was often just ahead of everything. Breaking balls used to give him a lot of trouble. And what fueled his breakout is he started staying back enough on sliders, particularly right-handed sliders. And all of a sudden, he's crushing fastballs, he's hitting sliders and driving them out hard to all fields. That's a really, really, really good place to be for a young, athletic, you know, up-the-middle type. And now the biggest thing is, okay, he's learned to stay back on sliders. Now can we get him to stay back on change-ups and stay back on slower curveballs? He's still way out in front on those sometimes. And Again, a lot of this breakout was at low A, although he continued to perform at high A. But once you start talking about double A and guys who actually have three pitches and can locate them a little bit, that's going to be the biggest test for him. So I think, again, both these guys have a chance to be really, really good players. Knack is that that number four, maybe number five-ish starter, just you know, consistently gives you efficient, quick outings, you know, five, six innings, boom, you're out of there. Um, and Leonard is kind of a multi-positional everyday guy. He doesn't really play anywhere well enough defensively to be there every day. Um, he's very erratic in the middle infield, and it's probably going to be more of a, okay, okay play second today, short today, center today, maybe left a little bit. And he's going to just have to get better everywhere. He's not average anywhere defensively, but really his bat is going to be his carrying tool. So I think as long as he just continues to make strides and again, he's just so, so, so quick with his hands and his swing, just learn to slow it down a little bit, wait back on some of the slower stuff. As he continues to do that, I think we'll see him really have another good season and rise up to be a member of the Dodgers lineup some point in 2023, 2024. Really exciting updates on a couple of breakouts there. And, you know, it leads me to sort of my next thought, and that is there's a lot of depth here sort of in that 8 to we'll even say 14, 15 range within this system. Who were some of the other guys that were within top 10 consideration? Yeah, I would say putting together this top 10, uh, you know, seeing a lot of these guys myself, a lot of calls with scouts and front office officials, both inside and outside the Dodgers organization. The top 
eight were pretty clear cut. I'd say the top seven, especially were slam dunk. These are the top seven, no questions about it. Eddie Leonard, I want to talk to some people a little more about just kind of his development and, and he's a little bit aggressive. So I wanted to see if they felt like he was a top 10 guy, even with his breakout performance. And ultimately it came back. Yeah, no questions asked. So the top eight were pretty set. Once you got into numbers 8 to 12, 8 to 13, it got a little more fluid, and that's where you started to get differing opinions on how many guys should be in there. So I would say there were probably four guys in consideration for the final two spots in the top 10. And if you wanted to argue for some of the other guys, I don't think you're wrong. Andre Jackson is just a really athletic guy with a strong arm who was late conversion to pitching. So even though he's older, he'll be 26 in May. He's still very young pitching wise and still figuring some things out, you know, feel command sequencing, but strong arm changeups getting better and he's ready to help the team now. So I think the proximity helps there. Then number 10, you, you kind of had a lot of guys who have talent, but there are question marks. You look at Wilbin Diaz, he just signed, just made his pro debut, big time international signee. But again, we have to see what it looks like domestically. Uh, an example of that is Luis Rodriguez, who we'll talk about a little later as another big time international signee who's no longer even on the 30. You have Maddox Bruns, their first rounder last year, big left arm, a lot of control questions, whether or not he's going to throw enough strikes. And then Jose Ramos, who was a, a breakout last year in the rookie levels and at low A and Rich Cucamonga, Really, really promising player. I like him a lot, but he's a dead red fastball hitter who, as soon as he sees spin, kind of gets out of it a little bit. So ultimately, Diaz is the guy that got a lot of money. People are really, really high on, you know, super young, up the middle athlete. So he kind of slotted in at number 10 as kind of the, okay, this is the guy with probably the most upside of the group. But you look at him, you look at Bruns, you look at Ramos, you even look at guys like Clayton Beater and Jacob Amaya, whose ceilings are a little lower, but they have some good things. They've proven it at higher levels. All those guys you can make reasonable arguments for to be this 9 or 10 group, especially the, the 10 spot, and I don't think it'd be an illegitimate argument. Yeah, and Ramos was one of those guys that I felt like throughout the summer he was a name that wasn't on a lot of radar coming into the year. Then his performance happened, especially early, really gained a lot of helium and was a guy that, you know, had a, just a lot of buzz in general throughout the industry. People were talking about Ramos as, you know, potential another breakout in the Dodgers system. That said, I want to talk about sort of the other side of things. There's a couple of big names who are outside the top 10, didn't bring them in as potential top 10 guys either. Um, Cody Hosey being one, I know we've talked about him a little bit at the beginning of the show. The other was a really high dollar international signee in Luis Rodriguez. I believe he was in the same class as Jason uh, Dominguez, if I remember correctly. He's outside your top 30. So updates on those guys, they seem to be heading in the wrong direction. Yeah, and again, this is just kind of to go back and say, the Dodgers are, are the best in the game at this. Player development, scouting, the Dodgers are the kings. But no one bats a thousand. So yeah, I mean, the update on Cody Hosey is there's a lot of divisive opinions out there. I think we need to go back to his drafter at Tulane when he was hitting home runs left and right. Even in that draft year, there were questions about his bat speed. He was more of a strength and timing bat where the bat speed was more just kind of average-ish. And by the way, that was the assessment of evaluators who believed in him. It wasn't about lack of belief. It's just who he was. He was more of a strength and timing bat than a bat speed guy. And we see that work sometimes in the majors. You know, the best example, uh, people obviously cite Adrian Gonzalez a lot, but the reports on Jose Abreu coming out of Cuba were it's just average bat speed, but strength and timing, it, it can work. But with Jose, what has happened is his bat speed, even when he was right, was kind of on that average line. There wasn't a whole lot of room to spare. And what's come up the last couple of years, we saw it a little bit in 2019, but really we saw it last year is, especially with opposing scouts, the bat speed wasn't there. I mean, it just was not there at all. And the Dodgers say the reason for that, they acknowledge it wasn't there either, but Hosey had an intercoastal strain that knocked him out for most of the season. And the Dodgers internally will tell you that 
that strain was bothering him long before he went on the IL. And that's why the swing fell apart. You know, the bat speed wasn't there. Mechanically, things fell apart. So it kind of depends on, okay, do you trust, hey, this was just the injury? Or is this something that was raised as a potential issue coming out of the draft that is becoming an issue? He went back to the fall league. And again, he's just a guy who's just not that quick or twitchy in anything he does. It's it's more methodical. It's There is power in there. I saw him take some easy swings and drive some balls hard the opposite way. It's just a matter of, you know, watching him move at third base, you know, watching his actions in the box. Again, it's more strength and timing and if the bat speed issues are really a problem it doesn't necessarily portend all that well to him becoming an impact big leaguer so so 2022 is going to be a big big year for him to prove hey the loss of bat speed was just because i was injured and some of the swing things mechanically i can get it back to average and if it's average he'll be fine um, Luis rodriguez was probably the biggest disappointment in the dodgers system and I had actually gotten word about this in 2020, and I wrote about it at the time. So everyone dealt with the pandemic differently. He went back to DSL Instructs in 2020 after people were let back into complexes. And I talked to some of the, the Dodgers International folks, and even then they were saying he got into some really bad habits. When they signed him, you know, it was a smooth level swing up the middle, made a ton of contact. You figured he'd grow into power. Well, he came back a lot stronger, and what was happening was he was essentially just taking big batting practice swings, just take you know as swing as hard as he can, just trying to hit baseballs as far as he could. And all of a sudden, he got out of it. It was a lot of swings and misses. It was a lot of just just ugly swings, bad approach, overly aggressive. And when he made contact, it went a long way, but he didn't make contact very often. And he came out to uh, the ACL this year, and it was a lot of the same issues. Just the approach was not there. It was a lot of big, ugly swings where he was not close, was not reading pitches, just kind of going up and, and trying to hit a baseball as far as he could, not actually trying to hit. He's got a lot of work to do. It's a very, very undisciplined approach. His hitting ability has gone backwards. His athleticism has gone backwards. It's just not going in the direction you want it to go. But he's very, very young. Again, there's a lot of power in there. There still is some athleticism. You don't want to give up on him. But for two years now, it's been kind of trending in in the wrong way. So, again, this is going to be a big year for him to show he can kind of get back to, again, trying to actually hit and perform in games and not just kind of hit a baseball as far as he can when he happens to connect. Yeah, unfortunate updates there, uh, particularly on Rodriguez, who, like I said, was a really exciting prospect. I think even from you know the tapes and stuff you might have seen prior to him signing. So there was a lot of optimism around him. That said, let's go back to a positive note here to wrap up the show. We asked this question on all the top 10 podcasts, but I feel like here it's actually really relevant. All of these guys that we deem sleepers – could turn into top 10 prospects within a year, especially with all the things that we've talked about that are going on behind the scenes in the Dodgers system. So who are the sleepers in the system, Kyle? Yeah, I mean, we kind of talked about Jose Robles earlier. It's a it's a really, really pretty swing. He destroys fastballs and his arm, he made a throw at Rich Cucamonga this year that will stay with me the rest of my life. It was unbelievable running back toward the right field corner, extends his left arm out toward the foul pole, makes a catch, turns around, body falling backward, kind of toward the foul pole, almost to the stands, unleashes a throw. It's probably a 300-foot throw in the air, on a line, on target, to the catcher, throws a guy out trying to tack up. It was one of the most unbelievable throws I've ever seen at any level of baseball. I, I, it was, I hope I just did it justice describing it. I wish I had video, but you see that and it just stays with you. But Look, it's a smooth, rhythmic swing. There's bat speed, there's strength, there's balance, catches up to velocity anywhere. It's big, raw power. It's all there. It's just he really struggles to recognize or make contact against spin. So shoring that up, especially as he gets into high A, is going to be big for him. But if he can, he has a chance to really, really explode. And then some pitchers, you know, we saw the Dodgers take a guy like Bobby Miller, who was a big guy who threw hard, had some control questions, and really do some things with his delivery and help him out. 
Nick Nostrini, he's someone I've liked since uh, he was at Cathedral Catholic High School in San Diego, saw him in the Boris Classic. And at the time, he was 87, 89 with a projectable body, you know, three pitches, just super polished delivery. It's like, hey, he's not ready for pro ball yet, but give this guy three years at college and the stuff was going to tick up. He's going to be a monster. And it happened. I mean, he was up to 98 at UCLA and the stuff was there, but he just completely lost the strike zone. It was just completely disappeared on him. And all of a sudden you kind of wonder what, what's going to happen here. The Dodgers took a chance on him in the fourth round and it was a very, very limited sample, but what he showed in his pro debut and at instructs, it was, I mean, explosive, explosive stuff. I mean, some people were saying 370s on on his pitches. And again, the strike throwing wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. It was better than what it looked like that last year at UCLA. And if it's even 45 control, it'll play. So he's a guy that could really, really explode. I'm going to be really fascinated to see what his delivery looks like and just where he's at mentally, because if he's throwing strikes, I mean, this guy can be an absolute monster. Uh, Emmett Sheehan, another college draftee out of Boston College. He's got a fastball that gets swings and misses by the bunch. Uh, he's a really, really good player, a really good pitcher, I should say. And on the position side, uh, another international signee, Rain Donson, who, again, was not a huge dollar international signee, signed for just under 500 k So, you know, a decent amount, but he wasn't like a $2 million signee or anything. A young shortstop who... Again, really, really, really young, has a long way to go, but you just see the athleticism, you see the way he moves, you see some of the things he can do in the box. He's just got really good natural timing, fast back, consistently barrels fastballs. I mean, it's there's a lot of really promising ingredients there. Then you go down, I look at a guy like a Ryan Ward who had a really loud year up at high A as kind of this next, you know, group of this, you know, Zach Rex, Zach McKinstry, these guys, they're finding not big, big time guys at all and just productive, did a lot of swing work and, and came back a much better player than he was when they first got him in the system. So that's a guy to watch as well as just someone who could really just kind of take a jump and be the next of these type of players who ends up in the big leagues when a lot of guys drafted above him never come close. So those are just some guys. But again, we talk about the Dodgers and how much talent they have and the infrastructure they have in place to help guys get better. I mean, Eddie's Leonard and Yorby Vivas were two guys that no one was talking about last year, even two years ago. Not even the Dodgers were talking about them, their front office officials. And now they're both slammed up guys in the top 30. I mean, the Dodgers have so many guys who can come from anywhere just because of the infrastructure they have in place. So, I mean, I mentioned those four guys, and it will not shock me if this time, you know, a year or two from now, someone that you and I, as professionals who do this for a living, have never heard of or end up in the top 15 of the system just because it's what the Dodgers have built, what they have in place. And it's what's always been so exciting about following the Dodgers system and, and writing it up. And uh, I know you're a lucky man to have that task and they're going to, they're going to keep you busy in the coming years. I'm sure as they trade out more prospects and draft more underrated gems, but Kyle, thank you for joining me listeners. Thank you for joining us on another baseball America podcast. Have a great day. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.